State of the Franchise, where we talk about your favorite franchises of all shapes and sizes. My name is Fred Dake, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Tom Stadler. Tom, how are you feeling today? Hello, everyone. I am Tom Stadler, and Fred, I am doing just fine. Fred, I am quite excited for this week's episode because I got... I got some feelings about dinosaurs, you know, and and are you ready to get a little like prehistoric on this thing? I'm definitely ready to talk about some dinosaurs, <laughs> and there's no better person to talk about this with. A person, <laughs> what, what, why y'all laughing at me? Dinosaurs. I just it, it's in your it, it, it occurred to me. What's your? <laughs> it's in your blood. It's dinosaurs. What is that? What is that character's name? Doctor DNA or something? I like know that? DNA. Oh, <laughs> uh, that might be what yeah, I'm. Yeah, the Colonel of. Sanders of dinosaur knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Fred, you're right. So this week's topic is the Jurassic Park franchise. We're talking Jurassic Park 1, 2, The Lost World, and Jurassic Park 3 with three claw slashes. And you may introduce our guest. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we were saving this guest for something special, and that's just what we did. We have Josh Randall with us today to talk about Jurassic Park. You may remember him from his episode on metal music and... You may remember him from the time where Tom and Josh came to my house and we watched Queen of the Damned. I don't know how you guys would have remembered it. I just wanted to bring up that we did do that and drank beers. I I was going to say, did you guys talk about that in a subsequent episode? No, we were too ashamed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh... You shouldn't be, because that was a glorious evening. Uh, but thank you for having evening. me. I, just, I guess what I what we should say before we get in deep, originally the idea was to have Josh on to talk about new metal. So we had like a guy's night. I had the house to myself. My now wife was out of town. So I was like, come over. We're going to watch a new metal movie. And I could only think of one, which was Queen of the Damned and... The movie wasn't great, but the times we had were wonderful. But yeah, I I gotta admit I had never seen that movie before, but I knew the soundtrack was lit because I had the soundtrack CD <laughs> when I was a teenager, even though I never and, saw the movie. And I thought the movie had way more music in it, and it kind of didn't just didn't have enough to sustain what I wanted. It was mostly just a lot of corn. <laughs> I love there was corn. a ton of corn music in that. <laughs> But we so that was the original plan, but we had to think of someone to come in. We thought of Josh Randall because this guy knows Jurassic Park. I know my dinosaurs. (laughs) Yeah, Josh, want to tell us a little bit about your experience? Well, maybe start from the top. Were you like a dinosaur kid? And then at what point did Jurassic Park come into your life? Dude, Jurassic Park made me a dinosaur kid. I believe the <laughs> first time I watched it, I was far too young to be watching Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Because I, I'm pretty sure I was 
the ripe age of four years old when I when I first saw. It. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Were you like scared out of your wits when you were watching it? Absolutely. I'm assuming I was four years old. I mean, I, I wasn't exactly a, a really robust keeper of timelines at that age, but I remember watching that movie, um, not in the theater, but at at my uncle's house in in Florida when I was a little kid um, before I had moved uh, out of that town in Florida. And I, I just remember being absolutely terrified of the T-Rex, specifically <laughs> the scenes with the T-Rex at, at night and when the T-Rex is like chasing them in the Jeep after they rescue Malcolm from the wreckage and oh, mm-hmm. craziness. But... You know, I was a kid that watched many movies before I should have when I was when I was young. <laughs> like a, a lot of those creature features, Jurassic Park, Jaws, etc. So did you have to like sneak around without your parents knowing and watch Jurassic Park or were they like, "We'll let you watch it?" Uh I think Jurassic Park was kind of spoiled because it was at my uncle's house and like everyone was watching it and I I guess nobody was really thinking at the time that like maybe we shouldn't have our you know four-year-old nephew watching this movie yeah (laughs) (laughs) which you know to me is funny now because i I, i'm an uncle of twin nieces and they are like seven years old when they first watched disney's the little mermaid the animated classic (laughs) and they were scared of ursula at age seven and i was like Man, I was watching T-Rexes at age four. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm surprised that they made such an impact. I thought you'd be kind of used to dinosaurs living down in Florida with with all the gators. They're kind of like dinosaurs, right? They uh, they are. They're quite prehistoric. Um, Yeah. yeah. I, I think gators and crocs have really, really stood the test of time. I don't think they've evolved very much from... uh, how they were back then. <laughs> Do you guys know that they would sell movies at Toys R Us? Yeah. And they would sell PG-13 movies, and that's how I got this movie, because I just convinced my grandmother to buy it, because we were at Toys R Us. I was like, oh, it's mm-hmm. you know, dinosaur movie. It just had like the picture of it, like the logo. And I mm-hmm. got busted, because yep. we were watching it. Was that on VHS? Yeah. Yeah, it was probably black sleeve with the logo mm-hmm. in like kind of gold and red. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like it didn't, you know, it didn't look super intense. It just had kind of the logo. And I remember being at home and we were, it was just my grandmother and I watching it. She was on the phone. My mom, she was like, What are you guys doing? Just watching a movie. Oh, what movie? Jurassic Park, I think it's called. And it was, What? And I had it shut off. Oh, and I didn't man. finish it for another year. I was about like four or five, too. So I saw the first like 10, 15 minutes of Jurassic Park and then had to wait a whole year to finish it. Yeah, um, I I specifically remember I, I was thinking I was about maybe seven or so when I six or seven when I saw The Lost World, the second one. And I mm-hmm. have a distinct first me- like viewing memory of that. So like with JP1, I remember seeing that at my uncle's house, which was probably on VHS. Um, and I just did a date check. So that movie came out in 93, and I was born in 89. So I would have been four if I saw it in 93, which is what I was thinking. 
So if the VHS, I don't know when the movie released, if it was like a summer blockbuster or what, but, but Lost World, I remember specifically being at my cousin's house in Saratoga Springs, New York, in the basement, watching it with my cousins, uh, Will, Helen, Vincent, and Elliot. And I just remember we all got the word, the phrase stuck in our head, don't go into the long grass. <laughs> <laughs> I always think about I love with it. the Lost World that uh, I, and again, I watched the first five minutes of it at a friend's house, and then my mom came, picked me up, and then I did not finish the second one for like, it was not a whole year, but it was like months later, so like I could not catch a break trying to watch these Jurassic Park movies. My wow. mom was around every corner just stopping me. She's just like keeping an eye like, Fred, he's watching that scary dinosaur movie. <laughs> <laughs> and now look at me like, I can't stop watching movies. <laughs> I know, you just crushed the Halloween trilogy finally. Just... It ended for me. It, it ended. <laughs> I also remember at the uh, end of Jurassic world when i did watch it it was like i was watching with my dad my brother so as i was like seven or eight and the end when it's the t-rex comes to you know it comes to our side it crosses the pond to the united states is in like san diego i remember mm -hmm. me saying my worst nightmare coming true in a movie <laughs> like and I just have that line in my head like that and when I think back on it like dinosaurs were not something that like super freaked me out Jurassic Park definitely scared me but for some reason mm -hmm. me just like jaw drop saying that just always sticks up in my mind <laughs> I remember just thinking the lost world was twice as good not because it was the sequel, but because it had not one, but two T-Rexes <laughs> in it. <laughs> what about you, Tom? What's your earliest memories with the, the park? When did, when did you open the gates? When I opened the gates? Probably very shortly after it came out. So to confirm what Josh suspected, it did come out in June of 1993. So I was the... The tender age of six, or not even six, actually, at that time. I was five years old. And I remember it being too scary to go see in theaters. So, I, and I mean, I love dinosaurs, too. So it was, like, killing me. I remember that, that I couldn't go see this movie. And so we rented it when we got home, or when it came out on video. And I remember watching it and just being terrified of the T-Rex and the raptors and everything. And I was like a huge dinosaur kid at that point. And at that, after that, I was like, uh-uh. I was like, you gave me Land Before Time and they had a scary T-Rex <laughs> in that. Gave me the T-Rex in this movie and Mr. Spielberg scared the pants off of me. And I was out. And I was like, I don't like this movie. I don't want to have anything to do with it. But then four years later, I went and saw The Lost World in theaters. Ooh. And I was like, eh, I don't know that I loved it, but, you know, it, it was something. Wow. And then four years later, Jurassic Park 3 came out, and I was like, I don't know that I want to see this. People were like, let's go see it. It's the third one. It's probably the last one. Ha. Went and saw it. And I was like, eh, I don't know that I love that either. But I guess that was a movie. <laughs> and... <laughs> 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 I I guess my, my thing with Jurassic Park 
I recognize what a, a, a wonderful franchise it is for so many people, but I don't know that I've ever quite had the same amount of love for it that many do. I, I don't know if it's just because I got so scared when I first saw that first one that it just sort of like put me on guard every time I you know, encounter the franchise. I mean, even the freaking video games when they would come out and be like, ah, there's dinosaurs coming out of the walls. <laughs> <laughs> like, but I guess it's just, I don't know. I, I like dinosaurs. I think Jurassic Park is it's a fine, fine movie, but I'm here today to, to, to try and understand why, why you gentlemen appreciate the first so much and, and why you think everyone else loves this franchise as much as they do. Oh, that's a uh, that's almost jumping the shark there. Yeah, that you. Oh no, we're jumping s- over the pterodactyl. Spo- spoiler thing. alert for the audience: <laughs> Fred and I, <laughs> Fred and I, loved the first movie specifically. <laughs> that's true, and uh, I will just—I'll put all the cards on the table, and then we can move forward. I would say, I love the first one. The second one's not good, but there's some stuff that I like and some of my favorite stuff of the three first movies that we're talking about, I like the most. And we'll get into that later Mm. in the episode. And I think the third one suffers from being Jurassic Park 3. I always argued that if that was somehow just an offshoot dinosaur adventure movie, if somehow didn't have the baggage of the other movies, it would be a great Joe Johnson, Johnston, whatever it is. I don't know if he's got a T in there. Uh, it's a T, yeah. Johnston. Then he might be related to my family because we're Johnstons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you find out you have a cousin once removed that's related yeah, to him. Yeah, give me some of that um, I shrunk my kids movie money. But uh, <laughs> no, I think that third one would have just been like a fun action romp with like not all this hatred that the third one kind of has, which I think is a little uncalled for, but yes, I would say that it's not quite on the tier of the first one. (laughs) I, I think, uh, so I will follow up and kind of echo your, your comments and sentiments there. Fred love the first one. Second one. Um, don't, love it as a as a movie in terms of its overall quality but it's very nostalgic for me um and it still feels like it has a lot of great scenes in it Mm -hmm. despite not being a great overall movie especially when you consider it was directed by spielberg it's probably one of spielberg's worst movies he's ever made um granted Spielberg's recent efforts have not been all that great uh, as well. But the third movie, I, oh, woof. Um, third movie suffers from a lot of things. I think it's one of Joe Johnston's worst movies. And I think it's just some of the actors that are in it. It's some of their worst movies. But I largely mm-hmm. think it's due to the, the, the script in the third movie, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the plot itself is terrible, but when you consider that it is the third romp in Jurassic Park and you consider that the character of Alan Grant is now like going back and getting tricked onto the island like that, that makes sense. Like the first like act of it is good, 
minus a couple wonky scenes, which we can get into later. But the <laughs> the characters are so unlikable. Like, there's not a single likable character in that movie, at least not to me. That was something that I didn't remember picking on, too, specifically, was that you have William H. Macy, who always kind of plays kind of a good, never like a straight on like antagonist, right? But he's always kind of a bad dude who's sort of kind of likable still, sort of like his shameless mm-hmm. character, right? And he's like very good at balancing that act where he's kind of like got that, that, oh, shucks, you know, look to him where you're like, well, you know, he can't be that bad, you right? Get the like, true so coat. <laughs> I'm telling you. And in this movie, I feel like he's just straight up kind of unlikable. Like, I don't really feel like, uh, like, eh, if it very does, unlikable. Like, yeah. His wife, Taylor is very unlikable. Their, their kid is probably the most likable character. And he's an annoying kid. Like that happened in a lot of nineties movies where mm-hmm. like in early two thousands movies where you have annoying kids that are either, that are like written poorly, directed poorly and whatnot. Like, I don't think I liked him because I think he was the bully in the sixth sense. And right, he doesn't he really he doesn't really un- understand improv. He tries to talk about it. He's like, it's called improv. <laughs> <laughs> that just kind of offended me as That's an improviser, personal. you know? Yeah. Kind of hits you deep in your core. And I was like, you don't know improv. <laughs> and like Dr. Alan Grant in that movie, like, is like a completely like again, aside from act one, where it's like, oh, he's clearly like got PTSD from his experiences in the first film, which makes sense. But like his character arc of being a curmudgeon at the beginning of Jurassic Park one and then kind of developing into this father figure guardian for the kids in JP one is completely like absent and, and missing. And he has to go through that entire same exact arc again in JP three. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why <laughs> we've yeah. literally seen this character do the exact same arc. <laughs> so, and maybe that's something that I kind of want to explore a little bit too, though, is like, does how good the first one came together, make up for a lot of the sins that some of the sequels have not really lived up to necessarily. Cause I think, there's definitely pieces of the lost world that even when you think about it are like, Oh yeah, you know what? There are some really good sequences in that. Like, I mean, there is something about that ending sequence when T-Rex comes over on the boat and you're like, Oh my God, this is, this is like the terror that I've been kind of waiting for this whole movie to be honest, but some high stakes. Yeah. But then it kind of has a Japanese businessman running from, the T-Rex in a, like a spoofy Godzilla yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, which, that doesn't age which well was, at all. Which I agree with you, yeah, like, they're like, oh, finally they're doing this thing, but then it's doing, like, goofball shit. Yeah. And yeah. gymnastics. It's tone. It, yeah, oh my goodness, the gymnastics scene. Oh, no. Like, like it tonally, that movie's all over the place with like just being good quality filmmaking and kind of giving you still that shock and awe uh, that you got in JP one kind of all over again. But, you know, they figured out ways to heighten it. Right. So going from one T-Rex to now there's two. So, yeah, it's naturally even it's twice the danger and whatnot. 
and then going into the the scene in San Francisco. But then, yeah, what we go from like intense Velociraptor scenes in the in the kitchen in JP one to I'm gonna do gymnastics and kick a raptor in the face as I'm twirling on a a, <laughs> a bar, like kind of takes you out of it. Yeah. Well, I think that's something that the the franchise in general. I mean, even if you think about the way that Jurassic World kind of went, there's some pieces of it there. It's really leaning into like that corniness, right? Where it kind of jumps in. And you're like, oh, okay, this is sort of goofy. I mean, even just the whole fact of like Chris Pratt's character in that. And I mean, I know we're not really going to focus on Jurassic World today. That's another podcast. But there's pieces of it where you're kind of like, like the, what is it, like the pterodactyl that kind of picks up that chaperone and like drops, mm-hmm. <laughs> Dr- drops her into the mosasaur. Yeah. Like it's stuff like that where it's sort of just like completely unbelievable to the point where you're like, is this really like, it's like the, it's like the movies started to not know if they were supposed to be creature features, summer blockbusters with more action and more effects, or if they were meant to be like really compelling stories that, happen to you know bring in the magic of our imaginations around dinosaurs these these prehistoric almost mythological creatures to us right that that fascinate us and and enthrall our minds it's like each each movie after jurassic park one had no idea what it was supposed to be and i can only imagine that that's some level of muddling between production studios uh, you know, deadlines and budgeting, um, shifting screenwriters, and then directors who are either fully engaged and committed to a vision or directors who are like phoning it in and getting a paycheck. Yeah. Well, let's maybe dive in from that of how the production came together because there's some very interesting things about how the first movie even got off the ground. So Michael Crichton, who wrote the book, actually conceived a screenplay around a pterodactyl being cloned from fossil DNA. And as he was kind of like working through this idea, he came up with the the whole concept of Jurassic Park. Like what if it was like a whole theme park based on this? So Spielberg actually learned that this novel was in the making in October of like 1989. And he and Crichton were discussing a screenplay that would become like a TV series even before the book was published. Oh, wow. <laughs> so this, Wait, this the, whole... the screenplay there, the TV series screenplay was a Jurassic Park TV series or is that a... They ended up uh, auctioning off, I thought, to ABC and it became the Dinosaurs show. <laughs> is that no. for real? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no, don't believe my bullshit. Never. <laughs> No, um, so I think what it was is they were talking TV because they were working on a screenplay that ended up becoming the series ER, you know, the George Clooney TV series. And they were talking about Jurassic Park, and he's like, no, this this is a movie. So Crichton put up a non-negotiable fee for like a substantial percentage of the total gross that the movie would make. And then... 
all these people bid for their rights. Warner Brothers was in, Tim Burton, Columbia TriStar, Richard Donner, 20th Century Fox, Joe Dante. Like, everybody wanted a piece of this action. And finally, like, Universal was the one that won the bid uh, to adapt the, the novel into a screenplay. And then they gave it to Spielberg and basically inked him for that. So they uh, they put all their, their money on that being a hit and lo and behold here we are what, so six without jurassic later? park universal would be probably dead in the probably. water very possible they, they were they very desperate literally jurassic park made universal a juggernaut like, i mean yep. i feel like et was big for them with spielberg you know that's a universal picture and that's oscar nominated and I'm trying to think because that's a big gap though, eighty seven, ninety three. I'm trying to think if Universal had any sort of big, you know, big movies between them because that would be a, I guess, a big gap. There. Was Spielberg exclusively working with Universal for all those years? Because that's pre DreamWorks. I don't know that he was exclusively. Yeah. Like, did was Jaws Universal? You are correct. Universal did in fact produce Jaws. Ooh. Yes. So they have been working with Spielberg for a long, long time. Long, long time. Interesting. But they didn't do, say, Indiana Jones, right? Because that was Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer? Correct. So he wasn't, like you said, he wasn't exclusively working with them. But it seems like some of his early big hits were all universal. Yeah. So I think they would try and partner with him when they could because... They would do a lot of co-productions. Like they did co-produce Back to the Future, also The Land Before Time with Lucasfilm. Oh, so Littlefoot and Petrie and Sarah. <laughs> it's the Secret Valley. Yeah, I'm also kind of that in that sweet spot of the '90s. Universal. I'm seeing they have Back to the Future Part Three. Uh, a lot of uh, Spike Lee movies, actually. I'm seeing like Jungle Fever. Wait, have y'all done a Back to the Future podcast? We have not. No, we have not yet. Got to put One that day. on the docket. You got three movies to talk about there. <laughs> also, but yeah, it looks yeah. like Zemeckis was kind of a Universal guy. So, like, I mean, Universal doesn't seem like they were in big trouble, but I am not seeing blockbusters on this level leading up to Jurassic Park. The last one I'm seeing would be probably like E.T. Yeah. I mean, listen, from the point that Back to the Future was getting produced, I mean, all they really had was they had an American Tale, Land Before Time, Tremors, Problem Child. Oh, Tremors is great. Dark Man, Buried Alive, Child's Play, Kindergarten Cop, Knight Rider, the series, and Backdraft, mm -hmm. and Beethoven. So once we get to Jurassic Park, I mean, they're not making money hand over fist. I mean, certainly some of those movies did well, but they weren't like the big no, blockbuster that Jurassic Park turned out to they're be. They're like adult movies, movies that we don't get anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> It is interesting, all of the creature features that they do have, right? Right. Though, between Jaws, you could you could arguably consider E.T. a creature feature, even though it's like a family-friendly one. Tremors was on that list as well in Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of how they they made their money, though, originally, right? I mean, they go all the way back to Frankenstein, you know, the 1920s Yeah, Universal movie. Monsters. Yeah, Mummy. Like, that was all them. They basically kind of made creature features a thing in Hollywood. I hadn't really ever thought of it like that, but yeah, you are correct. It's their legacy, in a way. Well, does that mean Universal <laughs> was behind the Mummy Mummy? As in... Our mummy? As in the only mummy? Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> the only one that matters. I feel oh. that's some chunk of change later down the line. And maybe another episode that probably has Josh on. How pissed would you be, Josh, if we did the mummy <laughs> without you? I would, I, I would be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, what? what friend do you have that you know... That like cares about that movie more than me. <laughs> Who else did you let read from the book? <laughs> Do not read from the book. Universal did in fact distribute the Mummy, the Brendan Fraser nineteen ninety seven classic. Ninety seven, right? Or no, ninety nine. Well, I'm I was sorry. Gonna say that's later than ninety seven. Yeah, the ninety nine um, sounds right. Their highest grossing films worldwide. If you want to know this, Jurassic World is number one, Furious 7, number two, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom 3, Fate of the Furious 4, Minions 5, Jurassic Park, number six, mm. adjusted for inflation. Fallen Fate Kingdom War. is the one that came out this no, year? Was sec- yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's the third one. It no, was, Fallen Kingdom is oh, number two. Uh, was two. Dominion. And Dominion, Dominion? Fallen Kingdom was terrible. Wow. Okay. It doesn't matter, though. People were pretty amped for They were hyped, so they went to go see it and realized it was terrible, but, you know, they already spent their money, so. Yeah, Jurassic Park made $400 million in the U.S., or North America, really, altogether. Made $1 billion, even with its uh, re- reissues in the theater worldwide. Uh, You're saying JP won? Yep. Have you all read the any of the any Crichton books before? I have not, and I've had Jurassic Park on my list forever, and I've just never read it. But I've heard it's so much more intense than I'd, the movie. I'd say it's much more brutal and also kind of interestingly clinical with like the science. Like he's very much like how Stephen King describes Americana, he describes science. <laughs> like he just very like, yeah, they use injecting serum canisters. You know, the type, the type that <laughs> come in the AB <laughs> formats, like he'll break down like all this stuff. And you're like, Oh my gosh. But his like action scenes or thrilling suspense scenes, if you want to call them that are just like very descriptive and gory. Interesting. Yeah, I've definitely never read any Crichton, but I would be very curious to at least try and read the first Jurassic Park book. What else did he write, now that I'm thinking about it? He did, like, um, Timeline, which is a time-jumping one. He has a disease book, like, kind of like an Outbreak-style book. Oh, interesting. there's one more I can't think of. Wasn't Paul Walker in the Timeline movie? (laughs) Yeah. I think Gerard Butler might be in there too. That's right. I I do remember this now. Okay. So speaking of that, 
So after Jurassic Park was released to home video, Crichton was pressured by many sources for a sequel novel, and he had originally declined all the offers until Steven Spielberg himself told him that he would direct the sequel if one would ever occur. So then production began like immediately, and after the novel was published in 1995, Lost World began production in 1996 to start filming and eventually be released in 1997 and did well. Not as good as the Jurassic World sequels have done, but it did make $608 million worldwide. Uh, around ooh, $229 million in the U.S. So not as good as Jurassic Park, but that's also Jurassic Park's including its re-releases in theaters. So it's possible they were actually fairly close. Mm-hmm. I looked up uh, Michael Crichton's other book mm-hmm. that I was trying to remember that was made into a big hit movie we all loved, Congo. Oh. Crichton wrote Congo? Yes. That's interesting. I was always fascinated by it as a kid, and I never saw it as a kid. Uh, but then when uh, I watched it as an bad. adult, it was, <laughs> it was really, really poorly filmed. Like, <laughs> like the, all of the action scenes are like some of the worst cinematography and editing I've ever seen. Like, it's intentionally blurry. You can't see anything. Like when the you know when the albino gorilla is going crazy and stuff like yeah like I'm just like as an adult I'm like what what am I watching this is such a like poorly filmed movie yeah Congo was not great it's interesting though to find out that's a Creighton screenplay or I guess he's the literary source for it yeah and adapted from his didn't work. he didn't he write Sphere which eventually yep, Sphere. Uh, they made it into a movie as well with Dustin Hoffman. And the Andromeda Strain. Andromeda Strain, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my man he, writes. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. He also wrote the original Westworld novel or movie. That was the one I wasn't sure about. I didn't see that when I did my Google, but yes. Which is pretty much just what if Jurassic Park but cowboys. Yeah. <laughs> and robot cowboys. Pretty cool stuff. But you know what? He also wrote Jurassic Park. Back on topic. You just, did you just segue <laughs> our podcast? <laughs> I was wondering about that, too. So Jurassic Park 3 began development. Originally, it was going to be called Jurassic Park Extinction. But then Universal decided to drop it and reuse it for Jurassic Park or Jurassic World early concepts. Uh, Jurassic Park 3, though, was greenlit in 1999 with a story by Spielberg, originally written, where Alan Grant was living in a tree for eight years on one of the islands to study the animals. But at this point, he was not planning to direct it, so Joe Johnston rejected it because he said it felt like an episode of Friends. (laughs) And nobody (laughs) wanted to see six college kids on the dinosaur island. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I like the idea of him living in a tree. That sounded good. Let's go back to that. <laughs> <laughs> so Johnston never had any concrete concept for the third installment other than the start of the film would be more standalone and feature lots of flying reptiles 
and <laughs> we we got that. We got the whole pterodactyl nest in that. There but, are some yeah. things in the about like some of the dinos in JP three look fantastic, and then mm-hmm. others look awful. It's I feel like it's very hit and miss with that. Like obviously we you had those like the evolved look of the raptors and whatnot, which was kind of controversial at the time. Mm-hmm. Not that you know we haven't had controversy over feathers versus non and all that kind of stuff over the years, but like. I thought the raptors were pretty well done in that movie. I thought the the pterodactyls were the most terrifying thing in that movie. But like there are scenes with that spinosaurus that are just like where the the way uh, the camera angles and like the spinosaurus up close like the animatronics of it just look fake. Looks mm-hmm. like B-tier creature feature like animatronics work and stuff like that which it's just it's such a detractor from like how good the effects were in the first two of like the main, you know like of the T-Rexes by comparison. And it's definitely one thing that does show up I think when you do see the movie is there are I mean it's a lot of inconsistencies all around which is interesting though too because Alexander Payne was one of the writers on that movie and one, three yeah, fresh off of Election, which is fantastic. And then after yeah, Jurassic Park 3 happened, dude goes and goes, ah, you know, I'm going to brush that one off, go make a Bouchmet or write that, write sideways. Very crazy. And then The Descendants, obviously, which was also Don't a Don't forget movie. downsizing. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not. He also did I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry, which is sort of embarrassing. Wait, Alexander Payne directed that? Just wrote it. Oh, but still, gross. <laughs> like, I know. I'm. I just don't get that one. He's just. He's like. It's like any other writer, though, right? You just sort of find them doing like some odd projects over the times that they just are like, why are they even involved with this? <laughs> Can I uh, say something very on topic, but off topic? I'm paying attention, but I did tell Tom in the background I have Lost World on. And I happened oh. to glance up once. And I saw a car during the dress during the dinosaur in San Diego Park crash into a movie store. In the movie store there's movie posters. And I did do a quick rewind. There's Schwarzenegger as King Lear in a movie. <laughs> Robin Williams in Jack and the Beanstalks, not Jack, the uh, Francis Ford Coppola weird body horror movie. (laughs) And then Tom Hanks in Johnny Tsunami. And it's just Tom Hanks face superimposed on a surfer surfing towards the screen. (laughs) I like that you described Jack as a body horror movie. It is. It's a body <laughs> horror movie with Bill Cosby in it. Yeah. Just <laughs> it kind of it kind of feels just icky in that regard, but I don't know. This is why I'm kind of skeptical about Megalopolis. It's either going to be just like a complete triumph or it just feels like it's going to be really not good. 
Yeah, he Coppola's a guy who I'm like, he should have at least one more good movie, but I don't think he's going to. Yeah. Which, if we're getting back on topic, it's kind of surprising that Jurassic Park 3, you know, just felt so inconsistent because Joe Johnston is a wonderful director. I mean, we talked about it a little bit before we even started podcasting, but you will know him as the director of little known movies called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Rocketeer, Jumanji, October Sky, Hidalgo, Captain America, The First Avenger. Oh, Johnston did that? Yes. I didn't realize mm-hmm. that. And I love October October Sky. What a fantastic film. Did he yeah. also do The Wolfman? He with, did. With Anthony Hopkins. And I don't Lucy hate that movie, but yeah. I do hate some of the CG in it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it has that um, Stan Winston. Is it Stan Winston or the Bark? One of those great makeup guys or visual effects guys made a great like Wolfman you know, suit for, for my man, Benny the Bull. But the problem was they got scared, so they just went with the CG, so he kind of looks a little messed up. But there are shots in that movie that are gorgeous of, like, a dude acting as a werewolf. I saw that film in the theater, and at the time, it was pretty... It, it, it felt awesome seeing it in the theater. I haven't seen it since, though, and I, I was just thinking about it since it's October and approaching Halloween that I would like to see it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's stuff in it, but yeah, I think it gets kind of like anytime there's CG werewolf, it just looks like a garbage movie and it just sucks because you know, Joe Johnson is a dude who is kind of the master at uh, effects that don't require computers. Like Honey, I shrunk the kids is probably like a great test run for movies like Lord of the Rings, where they're using forced perspective and, you know, playing with what you're seeing on the screen. And it just thinks that like the movie's got a bunch of like CG goo on it. <laughs> yeah. Right. So getting back though, to I guess the trilogy as a whole, and maybe even talking a little bit about the, the first movie, you know, now that we've kind of gone through how all the, the movies came together. I mean, obviously after them came three more movies, you know, we talked about Jurassic world, Fallen Kingdom, that sequel, and then Dominion. But focusing on the first three, what was it about this franchise that you guys felt made it such a big smash success? Like, why did it resonate with so many people? And you can even speak from your personal experience, too, of like, you know what, this was the moment I knew that this was a big deal. I think the effects, the special effects hold up very very well over time mm-hmm. um you know even to this day you know people will still talk about how the effects in jp1 still like look fantastic and so it's probably at the time was such a massive leap forward in groundbreaking realistic visual effects for mm-hmm. these prehistoric creatures that you know we have only fossils of that existed on our planet billions of years ago. And the concept that, you know, we could occupy the same living space with them was kind of really, really exciting. And to be captured in such a, a realistic looking way to where it was, you know, if you were a kid, like I was, you know, Fred and I were like four years old, you were like six or seven first time watching 
Jurassic Park one, you be- like you believed that it was real and that it was possible. So that captures the imaginations of kids. And then for adults, it was probably just m- mind blowing how realistic the effects looked at the time. I think you take that, which draws people in, um, but then you actually had a really, really beautifully crafted screenplay with characters that people could empathize with and care about and their their journey through that, um, through the park and all of the events in the first one uh, enables repeat viewings and, you know, empathy with all of the characters. Right. So a fun fact about that too, Stan Winston was the one who did the animatronics for the dinosaurs. So the dinosaurs only had 15 minutes of screen time in the entire movie, if you can believe that. And of that 15 minutes, nine minutes was animatronics. Six minutes was CGI. Yeah, and it was like early, early CGI. But they were really smart in how they, uh, you know leveraged it um in terms of framing the shots and the lighting mm-hmm. um to where you know the the most memorable cgi scenes are the ones that are uh i mean there's a few where there it's the raptors in the kitchen and whatnot and a lot of it is they didn't focus the camera on directly on the cgi dinosaurs for long periods of time to reveal mm-hmm. the you know the deficiencies in the uh, CGI quality at the time so they used a lot of things like reflections off of like the uh, you know all of the the kitchen ovens and things like that Um, they used for the nighttime scenes with the T-Rex you have nighttime lighting you've got rain you've got lightning and whatnot um, and all of that kind of helps mask deficiencies in CGI shots as well so they're just really really well crafted um, to where you know, people didn't believe that it was even CGI because CGI in 1993 was terrible. So, mm-hmm. um, granted, this was probably the best application of it ever at the time. But, like, when you think of CGI in that era, think of James Cameron's films like T2 with the T-1000 and the liquid metal kind of stuff. And, like, that was groundbreaking at the time. But that doesn't necessarily look real Whereas the CGI dinos in Jurassic Park 1 still look real the way they framed the shots for them. Yeah, I just want to give like the shout out to like the visual effects properly because I definitely messed up. Stan Winston, as you said, was kind of like the stop motion guy who was working with the effects. And then the makeup guy, Joe Johnson, the Wolfman, Rick Baker is the guy who I was thinking of who's known for the makeup, who did, like, the Planet of the Apes makeup and the last, you know, the Tim Burton one, which, not a good movie, but great makeup. Yeah. Um, even remember from, like, that documentary about the Jurassic Park making that, you know, Stan Winston was making the stop motion and then the CG guys were making the kind of computer drawing where they had a T-Rex just kind of walking on a loop and at one point, they weren't going to use the CGI. They just kind of shut it down. And they had all the big execs coming in to talk about the movie. And the CGI guy, what he did was he set up a big screen and he played his loop of the T-Rex walking in CG. 
So when they came in for their meeting, everyone was looking at it like, oh, what's this? What's this? And then they're like, this is the technology we need to do. So then he mocked up like a new version of it with like kind of the light effects. Like you were talking about how they had the rain, the nighttime and added those layers. In. And I know like that's like Stan Winston has that quote that when he saw that footage, that's when he knew he was extinct in the visual effects <laughs> realm. But I was waiting for that one. I knew you'd have it, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think I think they were gonna they were originally planning to do for the sh- the shots that they couldn't do with animatronics. They were originally planning to use um, like stop motion claymation, um, right? And because they didn't think that the C like CGI computer visuals would be able to to stand up to what was needed. And it was that shot that you're talking about that they showed, and they said, "Wow, we we could do this, and this will look a million times better than stop motion claymation." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine if it was basically Jurassic Park one was Gumby? Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> well, like it'd be more like Jurassic Park was like Ed two oh nine. Well, yeah, or like think about like the the moving statues in Beetlejuice, or like mm-hmm. right, yeah. I guess, like, I, I'm always, I agree. I don't think the movie would be what it is today if it was that technology. But I definitely have such a soft spot for that technology. Whenever anyone talks about it, I'm like, hey, shut up. That that looks super cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, to find the 80s, right? I mean, it, like, right. was this love for that 1940s, 50s stop motion claymation that had pretty much kind of run its course you know in some ways and then it just kind of came back with a fury but yeah cgi was just the next step and it's just incredible and i think one thing we we kind of underestimate too is you know spielberg having had gone through the whole experience of making jaws and dealing with an animatronic that also didn't look great by many stretches mm-hmm. of the imagination you know it had a slew of mechanical problems that he was so well equipped coming into this movie, kind of knowing the tricks of like how to make a very menacing monster look intimidating without necessarily needing to see it straight on and it being like in front of the camera at all times, you know, but yet in those 15 minutes that we do see the dinosaurs, I mean, they do, as you guys said, look amazing. Well, I do think, you know, we talked about the visual effects aspect, but I think what, makes the first one special is kind of what Josh said where yeah you had the visual effects but then having the script and characters that's what makes it you know that's what puts it above the other movies because as the movies go on the characters just get shittier like one is just like a murderer's row of great characters that you know if I pick a character you can tell me all about who they are and what they are and what they do in two, you can do that a little bit, but in three, there's just not much of that. And then the new movies, it's just like everyone's just cardboard cutouts, pretty much. Like Chris Pratt and Rice Dallas Howard, I like I like her a lot. I wish you know she was going to be doing bigger things with those movies, just because I love everything else she's in. But I just feel the characters are just lacking, and even if you have the good CGI, it doesn't mean anything if you don't like the characters. Right. You know, I had mentioned earlier how Dr. Alan Grant goes through the same story arc in JP3 as he did in JP1. 
uh, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard go through the exact same story arc in all three Jurassic World movies. <laughs> History repeats itself. Though. Yeah. <laughs> My gosh. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll definitely talk Jurassic World one day. I think I, I still need to see the sequels to even be able to talk <laughs> a little about that. But uh, it definitely does feel like you know, you still get some very rich performances in the sequels from Jeff Goldblum, you know, as Dr. Ian Malcolm in Lost World. And, you know, I mean, Sam Neill and Laura Dern never phone it in, really, in Jurassic Park 3. But you can kind of tell there's there's just something off, right? Yeah, but I would say Jeff Goldblum's kind of an ambient pill in Lost World. I, I was going to agree. He... Ian Malcolm, it's Jeff Goldblum, so we all love him. But Ian Malcolm is written very, very differently and portrayed very, very differently in um, The Lost World than he is in JP1. In JP1, he's very quirky and enigmatic and charming. In The Lost World, it's almost like they were like, hey, we, we need to normalize you as an action hero. And like that, that's kind of how he comes, like he kind of, comes off as like this weird cross between JP one in Malcolm and like, I, I don't know, uh, John McClane. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like, I think the movie just would have benefited if he had like Ferris Bueller schlubby energy trying to handle his daughter and this stuff going on. And like, he could have the arc of having to grow up because he doesn't necessarily grow up at the end of the first one. He may have a different, his arc, I think, is a different understanding on the world that isn't such, it isn't viewed through the lens of his academia. I feel like that's kind of his arc in the first one. And then the second one, I think it should be like, he does have to grow up a little, but no, he's just kind of like, like you said, an action hero in it. Yeah, he's like, he's like the protagonist vessel for the audience who's seen the first movie, who went on that adventure with him and knows that everything he's saying is true and is accurate, but he's like lost all of his characterization that made him Dr. Ian Malcolm in the first place. Cause the whole movie is him being like, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't go here. We shouldn't be here. Dinos are bad. The running, the screaming, you know, the blood and you know, the death and the dying. And it's just him constantly trying to like fix the situation um, rather than dealing with any internal character growth or struggles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in a way, isn't that kind of what the issue is maybe with some of the sequels? You know, and I guess I am thinking like further down the road too. Unfortunately, you do have to kind of just talk a little about, you know, the further sequels of Jurassic World. But it's kind of the same thing I think that kind of catches me up about some of the Terminator sequels too is like, do we really never learn the lessons that the first movie is supposed to be giving us? And T2, I think, gets away with it because it sort of feels like a matter of fate a little bit in that regard versus, oh, we made this active effort to, you know, warn people that this is not a good idea. Everyone learned their lesson. We're not going to make killer robots. But it's sort of like, like you have to think that people know about this Jurassic Park incident this whole thing went wrong and then they're like no we're gonna go find the dinosaurs on the lost world and i was like "Ah, you know we gotta go back to the park you know in the third one and then (laughs) it's like hey you know we made the park now it's open (laughs) yeah 
No, you're absolutely right. And I, I do think that that is part of the, the writer's fallacy to write this many sequels in this franchise, because at a certain point you're like, you said is like, no characters are learning the lesson. Like, like it's, and that's where I think like for JP three, for example, Dr. Alan Grant has the same approach that Jeff Goldblum has as Dr. Ian Malcolm at the start of the lost world. I'm not going back to the Island. You're not going to the, like, no, this is a bad idea. We shouldn't go. And Ian Malcolm's hand gets forced and Alan Grant's gets basically tricked and deceived thinking like, okay, I'm going to get paid to do this flyover and like tell you about all the landmarks and the dinosaurs as we fly over in this private jet. But then he's deceived because they land because they're looking for their lost son or whatever. And so now he's tricked onto the Island. Right? So at that point, no character should ever be like, okay, you fool me once you fool me twice. I'm never going back. I'm not going back. Right. Um, and then, yeah, it's like Jurassic World, uh, 20, 30 years later, we made the park and everything's fine. And like, that's the pretenses of Jurassic World is that over time, technology evolved. And so they were able to make the park and it was able to be successful for a few years. So humans thought they were in, in control of things. Mm-hmm. And then it, it goes out of control. But then again, you have the same problem is now in Jurassic World Dominion and in Fallen Kingdom. Like in Dominion, people go back. It's like nobody's learning. Nobody's learning like this is ridiculous. And then in Fallen Kingdom, it's just, well, it's chaos at that point. It's exactly what Ian Malcolm, you know, foresaw. It's not just one T-Rex in San Francisco. It's dinos all over the world. And now it's like normalized or something. It's Mm -hmm. It's like I feel, sorry, I was just going to say, I feel like there is room to have a franchise around a Jurassic a Jurassic Park. But I think I'm just picking back what you're saying is they kind of just rehash the same themes and ideas every time. And the thing that makes Jurassic World, I'm sorry, I'm talking a little about Jurassic World, is that the best part about that movie was the Disney parkification of the Jurassic World. And Mm -hmm. that's what it should have focused more on and hit more for themes is the excess, the I'm spending $5,000 more than you are in your ticket. So I'm getting this and what that means, what experiences you're getting, because I think there's kind of almost this elite tier, like T I E R kind of thing that's going on in that movie that I'm like, that's interesting working your dinosaur action into that somehow And then you can look at the later sequels like, oh, you want to talk about dinosaurs in the military? Let's make a movie about militarism. Is that a word? Militarism? Militarism? Militarism. 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 (laughs) Let's make a movie about that through the lens of having dinosaurs and stuff. But no, it's just kind of more the exact same ideas every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you there, Fred. Um, I wonder if with Jurassic world being a universal film, if it's too self-reflective of focusing on the excess and the luxuries and the, the hierarchy uh, and tier aspects of uh, guests at the park and all that kind of stuff, because just like Disney universal runs theme parks as well. So 
I'm wondering if like there's a little bit of that or if just no and they didn't want to give them themselves a bad image in that way or if they just never even thought of it in their writers rooms. <laughs> right. I guess the movie I want is a movie nobody wants. I want like the margin call a bunch of execs in the room debating like the cost of bringing the people out of the park like and the PR around it. Like I just want that movie <laughs> all all boardrooms. <laughs> well, that actually kind of gets into something that I wanted to even kind of dive into with our coulda, woulda, shoulda is what do different sequels or what do different arcs look like potentially? I mean, what would you, what would you, or could you change about this franchise to make it, you know, a, a pretty solid one through and through? I would say like um, less of a focus on it being, the the sequels being summer blockbuster films that have to have more dinosaurs um, and bigger set pieces and things like that and getting back to like actual grounded like relationship based character sure motivated plots as opposed to just movies that are centered around dino set pieces um, I think when you focus on dino set pieces and things, the dinosaurs behave less and less like animals or what we'd imagine a dinosaur or an animal would behave like. And they just become like these giant, like evil monsters. Um, and then that kind of like takes you out of the immersion of it being a dinosaur Jurassic Park kind of thing that you could like believe is real and just like oh it's a giant monster and it's a giant monster movie yeah mm-hmm. like jurassic park one all the dinosaurs behave like animals like like wild predator animals and wild um you know like you've got carnivores you've got herbivores whatever but like the t-rexes aren't hunting the humans out for blood the you know the raptors aren't like on a murder vengeance spree against all the humans, but they happen to wander into their territories, into their areas of the park. And there's, there's danger uh, that lies within. And, but it's believable because you're like, Oh, it makes sense. It's like, if I crossed into a lion's, you know, hunting grounds, the lion might attack me, right? I'm a source of food, but the lion's not going to come hunt me down when I'm staying in my hotel or wherever, you know, in the village outside of the prairie. But when you get into the the later movies, it's especially like JP3, that Spinosaurus doesn't feel like a real animal. It feels like a slasher movie villain, like a Michael Myers trying to hunt them down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's some of the harnesses that the dinosaurs are chaotic energy, and you have to use, I feel like, kind of what I was saying earlier, you have to use ideas and story things to propel a story that aren't just dinosaurs coming after you. They can just be the chaos wrought by the decisions made by the humans. The humans have to bring the story, because I think then you're just going to have like what the last few sequels were, which is just kind of boring dinosaur creature features. Yeah. And I mean, isn't that something that kind of makes... Jaws, such a reflective movie, not only of Jurassic Park, but 
potentially like why it works so well, even on its own standalone and maybe it's even its own sequels don't work as well is that you have this piece in that, that could have been used for Jurassic park. And the elements are there in the first one of like, you have the shark attacks at the beach and people are like, Oh my gosh, the, the, the water isn't safe. And the mayor is like, no, 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 no. We need the tourism. We need the tourism. Keep it open. We need, we those need to summer do that. dollars. Right. And like, I kind of like that whole idea you were talking about before, Fred, too, of like the bureaucracy of like, you know, Jurassic Park's open, but, you know, and they're like, oh, we're going to ignore the the incidents so that we can get people in here and spend their money. You know, like, mm-hmm. and that's that's an interesting story to me about like, what what's the cost of human life, right? To make sure that you're making profit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, I was trying to think of that. It made me think of that Coen Brothers movie with John Malkovich. Burn after reading how the end of it is just like all the guys in the meeting room just like huh, so so we're good then like I just want I want that Jurassic Park movie. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it is interesting. I mean, so who you know like who are the villains of each of the Jurassic Park movies? Cuz I think more often than not they are people. Mhm. Like Jurassic Park one, who's the villain? Newman. It's hubrisness, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, uh, that's actually an interesting thing. I'm not sure. I would assume it's Newman, Dennis Nedry, right? Like he it he single handedly causes all of the chaos and all of the fatalities to happen. Mm-hmm. Lost World. There's definitely like the evil group that's trying to capture the dinos, right? So I, I would assume they're the villains. Jurassic Park three, who's the villain? Spinosaur. <laughs> Greed. Like, and maybe the pterodactyls. Right. Like they're just inherently evil villainous monsters that are hunting them relentlessly in that movie. Jurassic right. World, the villain, um, is kind of it's kind of half the Indominus Rex and then half like corporate greed. Yeah. See, Correct. that got closer to the what I was just talking about though, too, right? Like Jurassic World, they're like, we gotta keep getting bigger. It doesn't matter what the dangers are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they almost did it for me with that. Like they just didn't have enough of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was weird because it was like corporate greed in the sense that there were like people within the park organization who were shady and making bad decisions, but like the CEO guy, like the guy in charge of it was awesome. And he was like very much a protagonist character and he doesn't make it. Um, Spoilers alert, but um, he dies in a very heroic way. And you're like, Oh wow. It's like a billionaire CEO guy. Who's actually awesome. Oh, he's dead. (laughs) But he dies in like a heroic attempt to like save lives and, and whatnot. But Jurassic World uh, Dominion, which is Jurassic World 2, the villain is... Three. Sorry, what? Oh, Fallen Kingdom. Sorry, Jurassic World 2, whichever one that is. Fallen Kingdom? Yes. Sorry. (laughs) So good these uh, Jurassic World 2 and 3 are. I can't keep the names straight. It's like the new Planet of the Apes movies. I don't know which one comes first. (laughs) The villain is are bad people again, because I don't know if you know, if you've seen the movie or not, Uh, Tom, I think you said you haven't seen it. 
it revolves around, hey, we went back to the Jurassic World Island to go capture the dinos, just like in the Lost World, but we're going to black market auction them. And it's very oh much gosh. like bad people at the crux of that. Um, and it's all, and it's, there's greed and whatnot involved, but it's like really weird. And like, <laughs> like I thought it was a subplot and it ended up being the whole plot of the movie. I remember sitting in the theater watching Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom being like, so when is this subplot getting like going to finish? We're going to get on to the, like the rest of the movie. And it was like, wait, no, this is the rest of the movie. Yeah. It's this black market auction thing. Do we weird. ever see in the Jurassic World movies, does it ever get to a point where like we kind of get more of what happened at the end of Lost World where you have the, and then we said San Diego before, Josh, you corrected San us, Fran. San Francisco. Yeah. yeah, where you have dinosaurs just kind of like running amok in, in cities because that to me should be like the culmination of what all this is. Is like you try to contain chaos and it is just everywhere. Or is that Dominion? That's the last one. It's there's the dinosaurs all over the been. earth. So Dominion, yeah, there's dinosaurs have so at the end of and it's weird because this is wrought about by the decisions the protagonists make at the end of Jurassic World 2, Fallen Kingdom. All the dinos that were captured for this black market auction, they decide to set them all free. And the so the protagonist basically clone. bring about many deaths and fatalities <laughs> for the rest of humanity because they set them free, and that includes good ones and bad ones. Um, it, it's so in the in the in the last Jurassic World movie, there's just dinos everywhere, and the villains again are like these are people. But also some of these like monstrous dinos, like they've weaponized some of them. And then there's other ones that are just e like evil, monstrous ones. It, but it's just it is chaos to your like kind of plot point. Tom was like dinos everywhere. Chaos. Like it's just these untamable forces. And it's that movie. And I don't think it's a good movie. <laughs> Not because like, I think it's a bad plot, but it's just not a good movie. Yeah. What I what I kind of, though, want, and I don't know if this is how it ends. I guess, spoiler alert for anybody who really cares about seeing these sequels of Jurassic <laughs> World. But, like, and, and where I kind of would have liked to have seen Jurassic Park 3 even go is, it, like, give me a, an ending that is kind of dour in a way that, some of the endings are implied in like Terminator or anything of like, no, you brought back dinosaurs who were never given a chance to be the dominant force because they were wiped out by a meteor. You brought them back to this planet. They did not obey your rules because they are the, they are the alphas and they take over the world. Humanity's done because of your own hubris. And like that to me is like a fitting ending arc to Jurassic park. Like we built a park. It didn't work. We, the park got overrun. The islands overrun. We tried to contain it. They made their way over to the world. They wiped out everybody. Here's your lesson. Humanity in real life. Don't fuck with this technology because it's not going to work. You know, it's just something that, that kind of has some punch to it, you know? And even though it's, it's always kind of dark to go down a direction like that, I would love to just see 
you know, just sort of us getting popped in the mouth, almost like an, uh, an environmentalist like message to it of like global warming, right? That we're just consistently ignoring at the highest levels where it's like, yep, yep, yep. Just keep letting it go. Let's keep building these fossil fuels, right? Like, I think like that would be a good ending to the series as well. And I think they were kind of sort of trying to go in that direction by the end of the Jurassic World movies, but they, I don't think they stuck the landing. The only problem is the audience really likes it when they get away and they play the soft piano music and they <laughs> see like the dinosaurs from far and they look more peaceful because they're in nature. I feel like that's what people really want at the end of these movies is the money <laughs> shot like that. <laughs> I just feel like that's the ending of every Jurassic Park movie. The new ones are doing like they're like ooh just wait we're building a world but like yeah I just they're like no I think they think that we want it to have a happy ending but no I'm for Tom's ending where it's like it's like a Kubrick ending or something yeah right kind of like the ending of like yeah like Doctor Strange Love right a, a spoiler alert for that yeah you know you end with humanity getting bombed into oblivion while you have uh, what is that I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places playing. <laughs> like it's it's a very dark ending but it just sort of like kind of like punches the the message that the movie's trying to say and i think there is something about how why that works for the first movie too and why it does have that good punch for an ending you know and, and I'll, I'll say this i didn't actually expect to do this and do a whole flip-flop Talking through the first one, I'm like, I actually have appreciated a lot more talking about the sequels. I'm like, okay, the first one actually does have a really good story. It is very well filmed. The visuals, everything, it's great. It's got a really nice, tight story. But, yeah, it's the fact that you do have these sequels. That I think it's just diminishing returns on some of the story in general that that first one offered. So, I, I don't know. That's That's where I've landed here. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have a coulda, woulda, shoulda. Um, I wish that, and this is kind of leaning more into Jurassic World. So Jurassic, the last one, you know, we were just talking about it and how it was chaos with all the dinos all over the place and everything. And that it was basically brought about by the actions of the protagonists, the Chris Pratt, the Bryce Dallas Howard characters at the end of Jurassic World 2. And in Jurassic World 3... They bring back Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum, not just as cameos, but as like major roles in the film. And spoiler alert, this that never it felt like every single one of them had plot armor and it was just a nostalgic cash grab. And they all kind of sync up with Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard's characters. And it's like, now we've got everybody in the franchise, all the protagonists together, trying to deal with dinos and stuff. And it just, like, I feel like it's a missed opportunity to have there be stakes felt if, like, any of the characters were ever felt like they were at risk of actually maybe not surviving. And two... For them to not all just magically be supportive of one another's actions and motives and goals, because I have a feeling that, you know, the animal activist side of Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard's characters to, like, let all the dinos go free and then cause chaos on the earth would be very much against what, like, Dr. Alan Grant and Dr. Ian Malcolm and Ellie Sadler would be, like, 
supportive of. So it just seemed like it just didn't feel genuine to those characters. And I think like the plot could have been so much better if that last movie was like, Hey, we don't all see eye to eye on this. And like, we're not going to try to kill each other. Cause that's not what our characters are doing, but we may not agree with each other's motives here and like have plot and conflict revolve around that. I mean, actually have stakes around not all of these characters are going to live to see the end of this movie. Like that would have been at least a better way to wrap up the franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, being a jerk to you, I'm being a jerk to the movie. Yes, adding conflict and stakes to the movie would be good. <laughs> but yeah, like it is kind of just like, um, well, excuse my French hand job fest. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Yeah. Everyone was just hooking everybody up. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I completely agree. So I'm, I'm glad that we're, we both had that same take from seeing that film. Like, I didn't have high expectations going into it, but I had hope, you know, bringing those original characters back for more than cameos and having it be Colin Trevorrow who started Jurassic World, which I thought was a great return to form with the first Jurassic World movie. But, yeah, like you said, it was just kind of like hand jobs left and right. <laughs> yeah, and, so you know, I don't want to be too hard on... Uh, Chris Pratt because I know he was doing a lot of research and focus on his uh, work for Mario so I'm sure that he was super distracted <laughs> working on Jurassic Park I thought you were going to say research and focus on dinosaurs for the movie <laughs> no he just really wants to make sure that the Mario performance is something transcendent and different you know he just really wants it to stand out yeah, Does yeah. he ever ride a raptor like Mario rides Yoshi? <laughs> no, but he does throw a shell at one. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he rides he rides motorcycles a lot while raptors chase him. So Mama there's that. Mia. <laughs> this is ludicrous. I I like for how I'm like, oh, we're not going to talk a lot about Jurassic World. We talked a lot about Jurassic World. It's kind of hard not to, though, now that we've we've talked through all of it, because it's such a it's really the legacy of these movies, which, you know, this was exactly what I was talking about before of just there's so many things that connect back to the first one. And it's whether they all really lived up to it or not. But that being said. Speaking about some of the, the good moments from it. What I wanted to ask you gentlemen here for our, our power rankings this week is to provide your top three most memorable scenes from the first three movies, please. <laughs> we'll limit it to Jurassic Park to Jurassic Park 3. Damn, um, all mine are from Dominion. <laughs> I really wanted to include that shell Wait, is that, is that Jurassic World 2 or 3? Is it Dominion or Fallen Kingdom? I don't know. <laughs> I we'll honestly couldn't tell you right now. I would not bet money on telling you which is which. <laughs> That's going to be just like trivia one day. I want to be like, put these in order. But then that and the Planet of the Apes movies. Which one is Rise and which one is War? Um, there so, was one really good scene in, in Jurassic World 3. 
It's the only scene I thought was like actually good in that movie. Josh, you're immediately failing this assignment. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the first time. <laughs> save it. Save it for off. Okay. All right. All right. But please, Josh, lead us in with your top three memorable scenes from the Jurassic Park. Right. Okay. Uh, number one is going to be the, the very first T-Rex reveal scene in JP1. When mm-hmm. uh, the power goes out after Dennis Nedry uh, takes it offline and all of the protagonists are stuck in the two Ford Explorers that are on that electric track and the uh, the T-Rex comes through from the uh, electri- the no longer electrified fence and slowly just starts basically prancing around the the Ford Explorers and like the kids are panicking the mirrors are fogging up because it's like a hurricane monsoon out there that whole scene is uh, it's so so well done I mean even to the like I just every part about it it was just etched in my brain like when the T-Rex comes down and like draws drops its head to like adjacent to the window of the of the Ford Explorer and the girl's got the flashlight and like she shines it on its eye and its pupils dilate like in response yeah. to the flash, like just everything about it. Oh, so good. So um, good. So that would be one for sure. Plus that also uh, features the lawyer getting eaten off the toilet in the straw hut, which is also <laughs> awesome. <laughs> the blood sucking lawyer. Um <laughs> So that scene, for sure, just e- easily without a doubt. Uh, number two, the raptors in the kitchen scene is yeah. pretty awesome. Um, just, again, very, very, very cool. Um, and for me, number three is going to have to be the dual T-Rex scene um, in Lost World with... Uh, Goldblum and the guy who's up in the the canopy tower and then he goes in the Mercedes SUV and then he gets eaten. Yeah, that guy. And like the giant weird like motorhome thing that they got going off the side of the cliff. Like that that whole scene is pretty memorable as well for me. I would say even more than the San Fran scene just because it it felt more pure and a little less like popcorn-y. Yeah, I think that uh, that scene's kind of definitely looked over because Lost World just doesn't have the cachet as the first one. But yeah, when that thing goes over the SUV vehicle or whatever, I think that's up there with some of the stuff in the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for like sure. he has to do like the tow cable thing to like like hold the the big motorhome thing from like going fully off the cliff. And he's in that Mercedes SUV and he's trying to do it. And then the T-Rexes come and like basically tear apart the, the car and like eat him out of it and whatnot. Craziness. Mm-hmm. Good picks by you, Fred. Well, um, I'll do a little bit of echoing. Um, I'll say number one for me is always going to be the Raptor kitchen scene. Um, I actually remember having nightmares that were just me in that kitchen 
And that was like oh, one of the man. few times in my life where a movie really like was getting into my nightmare. You know, and it's just so tense. The reflection in the oven or whatever when it runs at them and you know, it's just like the reflection in the aluminum or whatever. Um <laughs> I'll pick some other stuff just because like yeah, I'll probably just end up echoing everything Josh said. I really think the uh Mr. DNA scene where they're in the little <laughs> ride and it's just Dino like DNA. Dino DNA. I think that is probably uh history's best info dump of exposition exposition in a movie ever. It's like mm-hmm. interesting and I remember being four or five watching this movie and understanding on some level how the dinosaurs were made. It is, is like ridiculously sim. Yeah, it is ridiculously like identical to what you would actually see in like a museum exhibit about dinosaurs. Right. It's so well done, and it's very. It's easy to look over because it's just you know them explaining how they did it, but it's kind of ingenious how it's made, shot, and just the whole thing where they're. They're like in the pre-ride. It's like when I used to go to Hershey Park, you had to go on the ride where you were in the thing that moves, but just showed you how they made the chocolate. And it's just like, you know, like, yeah, look at them. They're pouring the kisses now. You know, like, (laughs) like, that's what it feels like. Um, So for my last thing, I want to do a little something special. I don't do a lot of preparation for these episodes. But I prepared this. I really hope I don't lose connection. For my last favorite moment, I just wanted to do a line reading. If uh, it's kind of like a mini monologue for you guys, yes. If that is fine, is <clears throat> it from JP three? Yes. No, it's not. <laughs> Here I go. We get in my zone. Peter. If you want me to run your little camping trip, there are two conditions. First, I'm in charge. And when I'm not around, Dieter is. All you need to do is sign the checks, tell us that we're doing a good job, and open your case of scotch when we've had a good day. Second condition, my fee. You can keep it. All I want in exchange for my services is the right to hunt down one of the Tyrannosauruses. A male. A buck. Only. How and why are my business. Now, if you don't like either of those two conditions, you're on your own. So go ahead, set up base camp right here, or in the swamp, or in the middle of the T-Rex nest, for all I care. But I have been on too many safaris with rich dentists to listen to any more suicidal ideas. That was very well done. <laughs> awesome. That Roland the, Tempo the, is my favorite Jurassic Park character in all these He movies. is pretty awesome. He, he, away, he's a my great... Yeah, yeah, the late the late Pete Possaway. He was uh that character was such a good spiritual successor to the 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 kind of game warden safari character in the first movie mm-hmm. who who didn't make it, the guy who famously said clever girl. Right. Um, oh, yeah. way to steal my first scene. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, oh, such a that was a great reenactment, Fred. That was amazing. <laughs> that it is was wonderful. probably like my favorite part of all the Jurassic Park movies, where he just like he moves the little screen and just comes at dude with his demands, and he just yeah. like he just wants to hunt a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And he doesn't want anybody <laughs> to know why. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. It's spot on, too. Exactly as I remember. <laughs> so, for mine, Josh mentioned it already. I do love when the, the game warden is trying to hunt down the raptors in the wild after the park completely goes haywire. And he sees and he's like, clever girl. And then that's the last we see of him. It's game recognized game. Game recognized. <laughs> Number two, that guy's name is Muldoon, by the way. <laughs> Muldoon, that's right. Made yep. by Bob Peck. Uh, number two, I mean, it's got to be when Wayne Knight is trying to get out of the park and he drops the canister and then he sees the the raptor with the frills and it shoots him in the eyes. <laughs> and I just remember being so terrified when that thing just is like... <laughs> <laughs> Just wild, just wild. Uh, Good old Dennis a, Nedry. Yeah. Uh, 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 you didn't say the magic word. Damn it, man. I'm tired of this hack of bullshit. <laughs> Hold on to your butts. <laughs> oh, man. So good. Sam Jackson, totally we overlooked the fact that he's even in there. <laughs> yep, yep. But a Probably great role. first Sam Jackson performance I've ever, like, seen and, like, really acknowledged. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think you might be right. I mean, Probably what me, Sam Jackson movies am I watching when I'm four or five? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, number three, then, for me is just the the thrashing of the dinosaur or the T-Rex when it comes out of the boat at the end of Lost World. I just have this memory of watching it in class. So I saw it in the theater and it had been a while since I saw it. And we were doing a whole unit on like, you have to like offer some kind of like fictional piece of science, like, and you can show a scene or whatever from a movie. So I was in like, a biology class, like an eighth grade or something like that. And somebody had chosen that scene from Jurassic Park, the lost world. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is intense. And then right as it's getting to like San Francisco and I'm like, I don't know. It just stuck with me. And I just was so like in awe is that he's walking across uh, is just great. You guys keep saying San Francisco. I thought it was San Diego. It's San Francisco. I, I had to look it up too. Okay, I, was not... I, I trust you if you looked it up, but for listeners <laughs> at home, I was given I was given Tom the biggest side eye I could. <laughs> <laughs> now, is it is the sequel to Jurassic World Dominion or is it Fallen Kingdom? <laughs> the jury's still out on that one. <laughs> yeah, we are we are mixing up our stuff. Are you sure in no. San Francisco? I didn't see Monk. <laughs> there is <laughs> So, you but you really want to talk about diminishing returns, which was a theme we we talked about earlier on on this franchise. All three of us, our top three scenes were all from JP one and JP two, The Lost World. 
the two yep. Spielberg films. Um, granted, you you had said from the first three, but none of us said a single scene from JP three. Tell me about a scene from JP three. Uh, on the plane when Dr. Alan Grant is being taken over to the island, before he knows he's being deceived, he falls asleep, and he's having a little snooze on the plane. And he it turns out this is a nightmare, and it was a very meta nightmare he was having, because while he was asleep on the plane, he believed he was in his dream, he was waking up from sleeping, and he turned over uh, to see that the voice that was speaking to him was actually a velociraptor, that was talking to him. And okay, touche. I do remember that. And then he freaked out and he woke up for real. Alan. Oh. Alan. Exactly. It says, <laughs> the raptor says it just like that. Alan. Alan. You know, they met. I lied. They missed out on an opportunity to have talking dinosaurs in this movie. They just needed one, just like in Gremlins 2. <laughs> the biggest, the biggest you thing. see. Or how about the scene with the satellite phone that they made a big deal about because it was a MacGuffin plot device earlier yeah. in the film, but then this like like the Spinosaur ate it or something, and then they they heard the the satellite phone later and they're like why wait why do we hear it didn't the spinosaur eat it and then it was the reveal that it was the spinosaur had found them yeah it's also got a really uh kind of underused michael jeter in uh jurassic park 3 michael jeter is the french guy from like green mile he's the bad Uh, guy bud He's in the Fisher King. Yeah. Now it's coming back to me. I do remember him. Mm, I don't remember like, this guy. He's Oh, yeah, that he, guy. I do remember this guy now. Yeah. Yes. You you would I was gonna say if you saw him, you would recognize yep, him. Yep, I totally recognize him. He he looks related to William H. Macy. <laughs> Doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. He's a great actor. I definitely mm-hmm. liked him. He was uh yeah, Pat or Patch Adams too. Oh yeah, another another Robin Williams collab. I would yep. say I also have a distinct memory of disappointment that the at the beginning of JP three when they're when they're like first running around the island in the uh, the T Rex and the Spinosaur fight is like a very disappointing fight because you're you like we were all used to the T Rex being the big bad dino. And it like gets its ass whooped by the Spinosaurus in like ten seconds. That was a memorable scene of disappointment. I'm starting to lose them now. Not as not as resonating <laughs> <laughs> or resonant. I'm sorry. Do you do you remember the scene when they go in the pterodactyl uh, bird cage thing? I don't. Do you remember <laughs> the scene? Of course scene I do. Of course I where, do. Where the little where the little boy is actually alive. And he has a little hidey hole. That he takes yeah, it's like a little green. bunker. Yeah. And he like gives him expired candy bars. Do, do you remember? Do you remember the scene in Jurassic Park three at the end where Ali Sadler calls in like the Marines and they arrive on the island to rescue them? No. What? Vaguely. <laughs> Are you just asking? Anyway. If you recall? <laughs> so 
Do you remember the the scene where the Spinosaurus (laughs) is thrashing about in the water? (laughs) They're trying to like get them as they're stuck in like a shark cage in the water. Do you remember the scene where the credits rolled and it said directed by Joe Johnston? (laughs) (laughs) So that brings us to the conclusion of our episode. Um, we definitely appreciate you being here this week, Josh. But before you go, we would like to do our little plug segment and want to know if you have anything that you would like to plug for any upcoming things that you have or things that you have going on right now. Ooh. Um, well, uh, most weekends at the Interchange Theater, which is a local uh, improv sketch comedy theater. We actually also do kind of all forms of live theater. So full stage plays and things, but most weekends there are shows there, which are fantastic specifically for myself. I do have a show coming up at the end of the month at comedy sports in the garage. It'll be Saturday, October 29th. It is a Halloween themed double feature, a murder mystery whodunit uh, improvised show that I will be performing in. Can you spoil who does it here? I have no idea who does it. It might be me. I won't know until the show starts. <laughs> okay. I won't know if it's me until the show starts. And if it's not me, I will only know what scene I die in. They'll just have to <laughs> buy tickets to find out. Josh, do you know where they buy tickets? Is it just on Facebook? It or is, is it just... um, it's actually at the door only. Okay. So... Show up to Comedy Sports at 7.30 p.m. on October 29th in Milwaukee. And tickets are $10. And it is a double feature. So there's that murder mystery whodunit clue style um, that I will be in. And there will be a second feature as well that will also be Halloween spooky themed. Hmm. Well, it's a great way to spend Halloween weekend. So Comedy Sports, that ends with a Z. It's all one word. Uh, Look it up. And you can. Fred, what do you got? Um, I don't really have much going on now. I'm taking a break. I've had two weddings and I've been traveling. I got a honeymoon coming up. So uh, just um, catch me around. But definitely check out local improv and local comedy in your area, whether you're in Milwaukee or Baltimore. I just went to Maryland for my second wedding i don't that's it that sounds so bad when you say it like that i went to maryland <laughs> if had a had wedding a, what about second what wedding about second wedding and uh i ran into a guy who was a nice family friend of mine who was like yeah i, I listened to your podcast so i was gonna do a shout out Aww. to chip if you uh come around to the jurassic park episode what's funny about chip is he flat out told me that he doesn't listen to all the episodes, only if it's if it's a uh, subject he's interested in. And uh, I was like, "Well, if you ever want to come on, we want we love to have new people on." He's a pilot from Maryland. He's a funny Ooh. guy. He loves Austin Powers and Wayne's World. Does he like uh, Top Gun? Could you do State of the Franchise with Top Gun? I bet he loved Top Gun. We didn't get into Top Gun. He did give me a bottle of Screwball. And it was kind of funny. He was like, I'm not even sure if you really know about Screwball. And I'm like, uh, Wisconsin bars have this on tap pretty much now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to shout out right? to Chip Route. That's going to be my uh, 
That's going to be my plug. I'm plugging Chip. Cool. It's funny. I, I was kind of freaking out for a second because I have an uncle who goes by the name Chip who lives in Virginia, so not far from Maryland. Uh, <laughs> and he also was a pilot in the Navy. So what? I was like, <laughs> wow. I'm like, uh, this is not the same guy because my uncle's like in his uh, 50s or 60s now. But, maybe maybe um, they're from the same block. They're a chip off the old block, uh, what you said? Hey. <laughs> it was pretty funny, though. I had my best man there who also listens to our podcast, Steve. I'm going to give another shout out there. Steve Great. listens to our podcast, big fan. And I was at the wedding, and I introduced Steve and Chip as, you guys might have a lot in common. And one thing that you have in common is you both are big fans of my podcast. And they ended up sitting together the rest of the night, so it worked out. That's so cool. I love it. Well, great. It's always great to to shout out our listeners um, and our guests, too. Uh, for this week, I'm going to do a special plug for um, a friend of the podcast, Jasmine Gonzalez. She is raising money for her her family right now, her dad and uh, her dog, family dog, have gone through a tough time. Uh, so they're looking to raise some money to help some hospital bills that they're doing. The dog needs surgery. Her dad's recovering from uh, an emergency incident. He's doing better now, but could definitely use your help. Uh, look up GoFundMe.com slash F as in Frank slash Cover Louise and Paloma's medical costs. We'll list a link in the uh, episode or in our link tree. Uh, so please, yeah, consider donating to their cause. Uh, really means a lot to to us, and uh, we're hoping to have Jasmine back on an episode again very soon. Uh, but that doesn't take away from our guest today, Josh Randall. Thank you so much for stepping in, Josh, and being an awesome guest this week. Really appreciate you being on the show. Um, and stay tuned for next time. We'll be discussing. Well, <laughs> we'll be having our. First annual Halloween special is really what we'll be doing. Yeah, I like the sound of that. And if you've been following the show for a while or listening to any episodes, you will know that uh, Fred and I are quite big fans of the horror genre. So we're very excited to discuss a lot of things about Halloween. Uh, not yeah. just the movies, but Halloween, the holiday. <laughs> yeah, and if you are a listener and that sounds really fun to you, I recommend hopping on your streaming services and checking out some of the Halloween fair because I am definitely making it a point to watch as much of it as I can. I know I'm definitely Tom and I are both horror fans, but I think I, I get in there into the deep nitty gritty more than he does. So <laughs> between the two of us, we're going to cover a lot of stuff and, I just think there's some good stuff out there, especially on Netflix. Mike Flanagan's got a new show. Um, Hocus Pocus 2 apparently is watchable. I haven't seen it yet. That's something I'm going to go bug my wife right now. I'm going to poke her and be like, can we, can we watch Hocus Pocus 2? Are you, you still awake? <laughs> yeah, it'll be good. Um, if you have any movies that you've seen this year, any of the horror genre Halloween themed that you want to shout out, or if you have any scary stories you want to tell us, honestly, or if you just love Halloween, tell us how much you love Halloween. Send us an email at stateofthefranchisepodcast at gmail.com. And 
make sure to write and review us. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. You obviously found us on a podcast, so that uh, that service is perfectly fine to write us a review or send us a little rating. Five stars is always great. And thanks again to Josh, and thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Do, do you remember the scene where Joe Johnston's name appears in the credits, as Fred just alluded to, and it had a T in it, so you knew it was John Stun and not and not John Son? Remember when the so, credits of Jurassic Park Three had the MPAA stamp, so you knew you were watching a legal copy of a film? You remember when you watched Jurassic Park Three? And- All right. All right. And- and no. the HBO Max, you should watch Jurassic World next, comes up. Oh my God. <laughs>